Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of my podcast information, my episodes, my descriptions, some resources, a little bit about me, can all be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And the name of the podcast is The Big amateurism monologues. And my podcast can be found on all the big third-party directories, Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, all of those. And I also have been writing in a blog, and that blog brings us up to just before the Austin Oral Argument. I've been focusing on the podcast, not so much on my writing over about the last month. But there's some good stuff there, and that can be found at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot Calm. All right. I've been looking forward to this episode and been laying some foundation for it. But Seth Waxman at Oral Argument on March 31st said something in response to a question by Justice uh, Sotomayor that was really revealing. And uh, I played the clip at the very beginning of this episode to set up the discussion for this episode, which is really about the prisoner's dilemma that exists in big-time college sports. And I'm going to get into defining what exactly that means in just a second. But I want to go back to the context in which Justice Sotomayor asked this question. And the reason that I think it's so important that Waxman used this analogy of the prisoner's dilemma, because it brings in so many of the most important elements of the business of big-time college sports and teases out some of the tensions that have always existed among the big-time powerful players in the big-time sports marketplace, but most particularly how those tensions were exposed during the COVID part of the perfect storm. So let's just talk briefly about the context in which Justice Sotomayor asked this question of Seth Waxman. And remember, the injunction order that was at issue in this case, it is at issue in Austin, was put together by District Court Judge Claudia Wilkin. And the way the injunction order is structured with respect to these education-related benefits, Judge Wilkin put together a very modest list, a very specific list of education-related benefits that the Power Five conferences had control over. The NCAA refused to offer those kinds of benefits, and Judge Wilkin was taking the NCAA completely out of the authority and control over those limited benefits and putting them in control of the conferences. And the way that that injunction order was structured, the conferences didn't have to do anything. The injunction was purely permissive. They could have offered some of those benefits, all of those benefits, or none of those benefits, so long as the five conferences didn't collude on any decision with respect to those benefits. Because remember, the basic theory, at least from an antitrust standpoint, was that taking the NCAA, the monopolist, the monopsonist, this single entity that has exercised iron-fisted and complete control over the college sports marketplace, 
couldn't be trusted to act in the best interest of the athletes. So these limited education benefits were transferred to these five conferences where theoretically you no longer have the concerns about the monopolistic, monopsonistic control, and you have the possibility of competition in this education-related benefits market. Okay. So Justice Sotomayor, right out of the blocks, she asks Waxman, well, look, you're here representing the NCAA, and you're saying that the NCAA needs to have the exclusive control over these limited benefits, and you are complaining about this parade of horribles that will result if you don't maintain that authority. But why don't we just let the conferences limit those benefits? Because they have authority under the injunction to limit those benefits. What's your concern here? And so here is exactly how Justice Sotomayor posed the question and then how Seth Waxman answered it. Justice Sotomayor, I thought, Mr. Waxman, that the district court's injunction only prohibits the NCAA from limiting education-related expenses. It does not prohibit the conference from doing so. So if your priority is maintaining amateurism in college athletics and you and your members think that increasing education-related benefits will undermine the spirit of amateurism, why don't the conferences impose those limits? Mr. Waxman. I mean, I think this court gave the answer to that question, Justice Sotomayor, in Board of Regents, which is this is a classic example of a prisoner, a prisoner's dilemma, in which national agreement is the only solution. There is no doubt that what has happened with respect to the pay of college coaches and other professionals will happen if conferences or individual schools are permitted to remove these restrictions. And as I said in the last two episodes, one of the tragedies of the way this Austin issue has been framed to the Supreme Court is that it completely disguises the true power of the power five in this big business model. And actually, Waxman's answer to Justice Sotomayor's question was one of the few moments of honest insight into the true business model. But it was so oblique that it just kind of flowed through the oral argument. And Justice Sotomayor really didn't tease out exactly what Waxman meant by the prisoner's dilemma. That would have been a great line of questioning. But in using that metaphor, Seth Waxman was opening, cracking the door to a peek inside the Byzantine world of the business of big-time college sports. So let's talk about what the prisoner's dilemma is, and then let's apply it to the business of big-time college sports. At its broadest level, the prisoner's dilemma is a paradox in decision analysis in which two individuals acting in their own self-interest do not produce the optimal outcome. It was devised really in a game theory context, and it's an interesting dilemma. And so basically, the way that it is articulated in game theory, and then I'm going to apply it to to economics because it's been applied to psychology. It's also been applied to economic theory. But from the game theory context, here's how it's framed. All right. So the prisoner's dilemma presents a situation where two parties, two prisoners, two people charged with a crime are separated and unable to communicate, and each must choose between cooperating with the other or not. The highest reward in this framing for each party, for each of these two prisoners, occurs when both prisoners choose to cooperate. So the classic uh, dilemma is phrased this way. Okay, so two members of a bank robber gang have been arrested, and they're being interrogated by the police in separate rooms. They can't communicate. The police have have no other witnesses, and they can only prove the case against the gang in this conspiracy if at least one of the robbers betrays his accomplice and testifies to the crime. So each prisoner, each robber, is faced with a choice to, to cooperate with his accomplice and remain silent or to turn on his accomplice and the entire gang and testify for the prosecution, all right? If they both cooperate and remain silent, then the authorities can only convict each of them on a lesser charge 
of loitering. It's a misdemeanor charge. So it means that they always have an incentive because of the, the best case scenario still results in some prison time. They would get, they'd get a year in jail for this lesser uh, crime. So they always have an incentive to, to turn on each other. Then that's one scenario. They, they remain silent. They, they protect each other. They protect the gang and they both do one year. The second scenario is that one testifies and the other does not. And then the one who testifies goes free and the other will get three years. And then the other possible scenario is that they both testify against each other and then they will each get two years in jail for both being responsible for the robbery. So under this dilemma, each of the prisoners always has an incentive to defect or to turn on the other, regardless of the choice the other prisoner makes. So you, you have these various outcomes, but the fundamental tension exists because there's always an incentive to turn on each other. And the best case scenario is through cooperation. All right. So taking that theory out of the gaming context and into the economics context, which is the way that Seth Waxman used it, you can look at, for example, cartels, the behavior of cartels, and, and they also have a prisoner's dilemma. And I think that's the most analogous situation to the dilemma that the Power Five and the NCAA have. But all members of a cartel can collectively enrich themselves by restricting output to keep the price each receives high enough to capture you know, the highest economic return. But each cartel member has an incentive to cheat on the cartel to try to increase output and also capture profits away from the other cartel members. So you, you have these this built-in tension and in the in the aggregate, the best approach is cooperation because if, if the cartel starts turning on each other, it will fall apart and all of the power that the individual members had moving collectively will be essentially undermined and the entire market could fall apart. That's what Seth Waxman was talking about when he invoked the prisoner's dilemma in the model of big time college sports. So applying that metaphor, who are the prisoners here? Well, the prisoners are the NCAA in one cell and the Power Five in the other cell. And then the second question is, what's the context for the dilemma? And that is this delicate balance that has been struck really starting back in the 1950s at the very early phases of the television era in big time college sports and running through all of these permutations of big time football interests into the Power Five era and how the NCAA has uh, had power, how it's lost power, what the balance of power has been, who is really calling the shots. And there's been this dance back and forth between the NCAA and the Power Five and the Power Five football interest. This is a football driven issue, as I'm going to explain when I talk about the history. And I talked about this in some of the early episodes, but the business of big-time college sports really comes down to three essential components. You have the NCAA's economic interests, and they have been in tension with the football interests because the football interests sued for their freedom in 1981 in the Board of Regents case, and they won, and, and that completely changed the power dynamic. Then you had the NCAA replacing all of the revenue it got from big-time football through exploiting the March Madness contract, and that's been a long-term contract that really goes back to 1988, and it has sort of preserved the NCAA bureaucracy, and the Power football interests are okay with the with the status quo because they're getting a lot from it and they get all the benefits of being under the NCAA umbrella, but they don't have to pay a penny for the administrative expenses. All that's paid by revenue from March Madness. So you have this triangle, this unholy triangle of the NCAA national office, which is ostensibly responsible for governing association-wide, but they're really pr a prisoner to Power Five football interests. Power Five football interests are getting enormous benefit for a variety of reasons I'll discuss when we get to what they have to lose by turning on the NCAA. And then in the middle, you have this, uh, I don't even know if you call them a prisoner. They're just, you know, they are a piece of the puzzle 
that sort of sort of manages this detente between the NCAA national office and the big time powerful football interest, and that's big time men's basketball because all of that money, you know, the NCAA doesn't get a penny of football money because of border regions. All that basketball money serves the NCAA administrative state, and the NCAA uses all of that money to provide the the benefits that the big-time football interests get, and that's the incentive for the big-time football interests to stay in the game and not turn on the NCAA. So those are the three moving parts, but the two prisoners in this uh, metaphor are the NCAA and the Power Five. And then you have to look at what the possible outcomes are under the various scenarios in the prisoner's dilemma. The best outcome is for the NCAA and the Power Five to cooperate to preserve the status quo. And and that is the go-to strategy. And so I've used this term, you know, preserving the status quo time and time and time again in this podcast. And what I mean by that is this delicate detente between big-time football and the NCAA is the status quo. So post-Board of Regents, everybody's worked out their financial interests. And and the NCAA has come to terms with the fact that it doesn't have football money, but boy, it has made up for a lot of that in the way that it's exploited the March Madness contract. And that's its only source of revenue. So this contract, the contract in and of itself with CBS Turner is so crucial to the NCAA's interests. And then the Power Five football's uh, interests are real happy because they have their own fiefdom and they've got the college football playoff and they've got all the money that they generate from all of those championships and then all the bowl tie-ins and they keep it for themselves. 65 schools keep it for themselves. And then you, you have the downstream beneficiaries of the March Madness money who are pretty happy. So you, you have all of the, the big moving parts pretty happy with the status quo and all that has been worked out post Board of Regents in a world where the NCAA doesn't get any football money, they get only basketball money, and all of the big major moving parts have sort of moved along in this dance of self-interest, but they're all there's enough glue there to keep them moving forward. But the strength of that glue is being tested right now, and that is a direct product of the most recent elements of the perfect storm that really disrupted the NCAA Power Five um, cooperation approach to preserve the status quo. So remember, they were making great progress in the Senate prior to the January 5th special elections in Georgia to get a bill from Congress that would have eliminated Perhaps federal courts through an explicit antitrust exemption uh, created by Congress from antitrust immunity. And then they had pretty broad support for a preemption provision that would have uh, nullified all of these state laws that tried to interfere with NCAA compensation limits. Most of those were, those state laws were ostensibly related to name, image, and likeness. Um, But the NCAA's preemption provision and the ones that were put forth by NCAA allies in the Senate went far broader than name, image, and likeness and would have provided the NCAA blanket protection from any state interference with any NCAA compensation limit. And then they were also going to get this declaration, and it wasn't clear exactly how that was going to be folded into existing federal law, that athletes could not be deemed employees of their universities. So they had their plan together to cooperate to basically take the iron throne of college sports regulation. And the ultimate goal of that entire legislative campaign and of the campaign in this Austin case is to eliminate any external threat to the business model. So on the congressional side, they wanted the antitrust exemption. They're trying to get the same thing in Austin. That takes federal courts completely out of the picture as an external regulator, then preemption would have taken state legislatures out of the picture as potential regulators. And then this provision that athletes couldn't be employees of their universities locks in the existing status quo that prevents direct payments from the universities to the athletes. And then and then things just kind of fell apart. The wheels started to come apart because of some unforeseen 
circumstances. And I don't think anybody thought that the Republicans were going to lose control of the Senate. I don't think that anybody thought that the United States Supreme Court would be as hostile to the NCAA's fundamental defense of its amateurism-based compensation limits as they were. And in my judgment, they were hostile at the uh, at an intuitive level because when you strip away all the history and the amateurism and all these warm and fuzzy Norman Rockwell chariots of fire, non-economic justifications for the business model that were very appealing to Justice Breyer, perhaps Justice Barrett. But when you strip all that away and you look at it from a pure antitrust analysis standpoint, these restrictions, these anti-competitive practices constitute naked price fixing in a market where the NCAA has absolute monopolistic or monopsonistic power, and they're indefensible under traditional antitrust rules. So I think that the clarity with which the court, or at least you know Kagan and Kavanaugh and Alito and Gorsuch framed that basic issue really took the wind out of the NCAA sales. And there were times when you could just kind of hear it in Waxman's voice as the argument was going on. And I thought he was expecting a lot more deference to these non-economic principles and the NCAA's role as the guardian of the amateur ideal and amateurism itself. So you have an environment now where the prisoners in those cells are thinking that they may have a little more incentive to turn on each other, and the prosecution is putting a lot of pressure on them. So they're getting the, the strobe light treatment, and they're starting to rethink their strategy of cooperation. But to understand why the prisoner's dilemma exists, we have to go back to the early 1950s. And I'm going to kind of frame these discussions on the prisoner's dilemma in in really two separate uh, ways. And I might need two separate episodes to do this. So I'm going to start right now talking about this historical power struggle that has existed and played out since, you know, 1951. And I'm going to use as a template a book that is really a go-to book. And I think that if you want to understand the business of big-time college sports, you absolutely need to read this book. And I think it's a book it would be great if all the Supreme Court justices would read before they issue their opinion. And the name of the book is The 50-Year Seduction, How Television Manipulated College Football from the Birth of the Modern NCAA to the Creation of the BCS. And it's written by a sports journalist named Keith Dunavant. And I will you know, link to it in the description or the show notes. And Dunavant uh, published this book in 2004. But what he does is he, he traces the television era in big-time college sports and big-time college football, because it's it's really football that matters. He talks a little bit about basketball, and I'm going to use his book as a springboard for talking about the basketball component, because I think it's it's really, really important and wasn't really what uh, Donovan was talking about here. But he traces... All of the coalitions and the interests and the institutional interests on one side and then the NCAA interests on the other. And he tells a great story. So just to kind of set the context of how Donovan approaches things in his book and how I'm going to use his book. Donovan uh, starts in 1951, which happens to be the year that the NCAA is kind of deciding whether or not it wants to be in the television market for big time football. Because remember, a lot of people don't don't understand this. When television started to become more and more mainstreamed into American culture and there were more television sets in America and television broadcast outlets were looking for different kinds of programming. When it came to college sports programming, there was a genuine belief that television was a threat to, to the economics of big-time college sports because it was going to diminish gate receipts. And big-time college sports, particularly the big-time schools with these massive stadiums, made uh, most of their money from ticket sales. And, you know, if you have a stadium that seats 80, 90,000 people, that's a lot of money for your home schedule. So the fear was that if people could watch on TV at home, they weren't going to come to the games. 
And that fear really drove the thinking at the decision-making level in the NCAA. And 1951 was also an important year because Walter Byers, who was the NCAA president from 1951 to 1987, he started his career and Byers was a very shrewd businessman. He kind of had a dictatorial uh, control over the NCAA and he had this sort of Machiavellian, Nixonian leadership style. And he built the television empire and he did it doing deals with the big time media broadcast outlets. And he came from a Big Ten culture. He was originally a journalist, but he came from the from a Big Ten culture. And the Big Ten had enormous influence in the early NCAA years and, and the television years. And that's important because there were some intra-big-time conference tensions, really big tensions, that have also defined the evolution of the power players. And Donovan's book really teases that out. So Donovan's very good at telling a story, and he, he talks a lot about the personalities involved, Byers' personality, and then some of the personalities of other people he brought into the NCAA early on. And then the personalities on the network side, ABC, CBS, NBC, ESPN. And the book is really a book about doing deals and pursuing economic interests. So when you look at Donovan's book, really what you're getting is a description of how Walter Byers and the NCAA, and then a group of powerful football conferences later on who were threatening the NCAA's monopoly over football, were doing deals with the big time television networks. And when I, my, well, some of my takeaway from Donovan's book is the extent to which these mega conglomerate uh, media outlets, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then when ESPN came on board through ABC, and then they were purchased by Disney, how all of those media interests and sports entertainment interests have dictated the course of big time college sports. And through that lens, it is about one thing and one thing only, and that's the money. The money, the exposure, the power, the access to power, the control over the product. It has nothing to do with amateurism. It has nothing to do with the student-athlete, the collegiate model, the educational model. All of these normative values that the NCAA is based upon and relies upon, those are just cover for a rapacious commercial enterprise that is operating at the most sophisticated levels with the most sophisticated broadcast media companies and sports entertainment companies in the world. And it is exactly that essential feature of the big time college sports marketplace in the 21st century that the NCAA and the Power Five have gone to extraordinary lengths to mask from senators, from federal judges, and as we saw in the oral argument on March 31st from the United States Supreme Court. Because the more you look at that and you see that that really is the power structure in big-time college sports, the more ridiculous the NCAA's amateurism-based compensations look. And you can see that the NCAA's use of amateurism is, as Walter Byers said in his 1995 tell-all book, nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice. And it, it is a way, and has been since 1956, as I discussed in um, the last episode, nothing more than a way to fix the cost of labor at the value of an athletics scholarship. That's it. So the way that I'm going to approach Donovan's book is to uh, look at it through a timeline. And I, I did a timeline in my blog, and that I think is worth checking out. And I, I go back to that occasionally, and it starts in the late 19th century and, and goes through to the COVID shutdown in March. I didn't, I kind of stopped doing the timeline then, but I did do a COVID timeline in some of my other posts. But uh, that's a good resource. I think I'll link to that on my website here as well, because th that sort of teases out some other issues that played out in conjunction with this big time football power struggle. But I'm going to divide the timeline into, I think, four sections. 
for purposes of this episode and purposes of synthesizing Donovan's book. So you had the period of 1951 to 1981. And those were the years where the NCAA had absolute monopolistic control over the televised college football market. And they had the exclusive authority to enter into contracts with the broadcast media outlets, the major networks, for the televised football content. And the NCAA, in negotiating its contracts, they had they basically rationed the product and teams could only appear on national TV a certain number of times. And there were certain types of NCAA membership interests that were supposed to be represented in different levels and different conferences and, and all of this stuff. But the NCAA controlled all that. And that was the problem that the big time conferences had. So in 1977, a group of schools that were led by schools in what are now the Big 12 and the SEC and the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma were prominent in this movement, formed an association called the College Football Association. And it's very important to understand that those interests were regionalized. The CFA, the College Football Association, wanted the Big Ten and the then Pac-8, what is now the Pac-12, to join in the CFA. And the purpose of the CFA was not to eliminate the NCAA. It was to aggregate the interests of the big-time football schools who felt like they their interests weren't properly being represented through the NCAA legislative process, the governance process, and the overall business structure and governance structure of the NCAA. And you have to remember as well that this is when the NCAA had a one-school, one-vote legislative process, and the smallest schools in Division Three had the same legislative power and authority as the largest Division I schools. And so back in the early episodes of this podcast, I talked about, in the context of NCAA governance, how the football interests, beginning really back in 1973 and going through to the present, have put enormous pressure and used their uh, financial heft and the power of the aggregate power of their members, and, and again, the big time powerful football interests, however configured, have comprised some of the largest and most powerful universities in America. So you had this long, rolling, hostile takeover by the big time football interests of NCAA governance. And they started doing that in the 1970s by, by trying to segregate their interests within the NCAA umbrella. And again, that started in 73 with the creation of three divisions, and that was football-driven, and they didn't want to be sitting in the same division with these small schools that they had virtually nothing in common with. Then there was a further separation in 19, I think it was 1978, between the really heavy-hitting football interests and that is now what is the FBS conferences. So you have the Power Five and the Group of Five, about 120 schools altogether. But in that first separation out, it included some of the old traditional football powerhouses like the Ivy League. Okay. So you had then this further stratification from Division One into Division One A, Division One Double A, and Division One A were the big time football interests. Then after that, there was a further stratification where the Ivy League and there were some other schools that really weren't power players got kicked out. And so you, you've had this narrowing of the football interests down to what is now essentially the Power Five. And it has been done under direct threat by the powerful football interests to either leave or to not cooperate <laughs> if they didn't get their way. And so you, you had then Board of Regents where the football interests win this big antitrust suit and freedom from the NCAA and its monopoly over televised football from 1951 to 1981. 
And then in the 1990s, you have this hostile takeover of the governance process and the elimination of one school, one vote governance and replacing it with a federated system top heavy with football interests. And then you have the autonomy classification in 2013, 2014. And so through this evolution, you've had this narrowing of the big-time football interest and the consolidation of power that has created this monolithic beast that is the business of college sports. Here's how it played out. So we had this 1951 to 1981 period where the NCAA is in control of the football money and they're in control of the whole marketplace. Basketball was an okay product. It was number two, but it was there was a lot of separation between number one and number two during that period of time. But that period, I think, is defined most by a couple things. One, the big time football interests in the South, they they stood up, they fought for their economic freedom, and they won. And in the creation of the College Football Association, this rift between the Southern conferences and then the Big Ten and the Pac-8, on the other hand, turned into a civil war. That's how Donovan characterized it. It is a bitter angry dispute because the Big Ten, which has always had some allegiance to the NCAA because the the important leadership in the modern era came through the Big Ten. So there was sort of this symbiotic relationship between Big Ten interests and NCAA interests early on and and through Walter Byers. And the same was true to a lesser extent with the Pac-8. But those two conferences thought that the CFA was a threat to the entire college sports business model because they thought that the CFA was trying to take down the NCAA. And it got bitter. It got personal. And it affected personal relationships. It affected, obviously, the business relationships. And it affected the course of big-time college sports because that basic rift between the Big Ten and the Pac-8 on the one hand, and then uh, what are now the Big 12, uh, the SEC, and the ACC on the other, really wasn't harmonized at the business level until 1998. And there's, but there's always been this tension. And I wrote a post on the the ghosts of the College Football Association um, because when the Big Ten and the and the Pac-12 went their own way on fall football in COVID, and then the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 went another, that rift was right down the line of the historical tension between those two groups of conferences that have been playing out since the 1970s. And I think that was a fault line in this detente that has existed among some of the power players and how how fragile that detente is. But you you have to really look at how powerful that division was. And the Big Ten and the Pac-8 then, they had control over the Rose Bowl. And, and, you know, one of the things that Donovan teases out really well is that so many of these relationships were defined by their connection to the most valuable products in the marketplace. And the big ball games, the Rose Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, those tie-ins, the regional conference tie-ins were really important. And But the Rose Bowl was king. The Rose Bowl was such a valuable product that it alone and its attachment to the Pac-8 and the Big Ten, because those the winner of those two conferences ultimately were, were playing in the Rose Bowl. And the Rose Bowl was king in terms of prestige, in terms of history, in terms of return on investment. And so you had that as a point of demarcation that was a very powerful point of demarcation. So you have have this historical rift and then all of these kind of regional tie-ins to the bowls and the way that the conferences were, were aligned which were truly regional had these interests segregated in many structural ways that really helped to facilitate the conflict between these two groups of of conferences. And so the other thing about that period, and I guess this takes us into 1981 to 1990 and through Board of Regents, but on the backside of Board of Regents, even though theoretically the Big Ten and the Pac-8 benefited from the freedom, they weren't cooperating with the other conferences. It was 
outright war and the PAC, Big Ten and the Pac-8 doing their own deals. Then you had the CFA, which, which was still intact, doing its own deals. And there was a glut of football content. It, the market was disorganized. And there was way more supply than demand. And the CFA and the Big Ten and the Pac-8 wound up losing money relative to the status quo that existed before Board of Regents. And I think Walter Byers got some short-term satisfaction out of that. It was kind of, I told you so, because that was one of his, his arguments. But it looked in the early years after Board of Regents that maybe this Wild West marketplace in college football wasn't such a good thing after all. And then you started to have the, the very beginnings of what became just a crazy conference realignment that was football driven to try to put together the, the biggest and most desirable football packages to sell to, to networks. And I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but that's kind of where, where this momentum started. The CFA started to lose its value as a product. And then it started to lose members. And starting in 1990, I think Penn State and Notre Dame left the CFA. Then a couple years later, the SEC left the CFA. And by 1997, when the CFA disbanded, it was really a ghost of its former self. And it never really, even after Board of Regents, it was responsible for Board of Regents, but after Board of Regents, it never really captured its market share and held on to it the way that I think that the members thought that it would. And so heading out of the post-Board of Regents era and into what became this crazy conference realignment wave, there were two essential questions. Uh, one was, how is the football market going to reorganize itself? And number two, how is the NCAA going to replace the income that it lost when it lost its football empire? And Donovan doesn't really talk that much about the second issue, and I'm going to talk about that. I may do a separate episode on that, but you, you know, you had some fortuitous things happen on the basketball side. The 1979 national championship game between uh, Michigan State and Indiana State, you know, the Magic Bird matchup, which was one of the most watched sporting events in American history, really raised the profile of the tournament and, and the product, the overall basketball product. And then post-Board of Regents, you really started to see the NCAA national office marketing the heck out of uh, Division One men's basketball because that was really their only source of revenue. And, you know, as I've discussed in prior episodes, the evolution of the NCAA's relationship to that product and this ridiculous long-term contract and its relationship with uh, CBS particularly, but Turner also, is a really one of the, de the defining elements of the business model of big time college sports. And from just from a pure basketball standpoint, and I'll just say this, I, I mentioned this in the first episode and it's on my podcast website, but I played basketball for Duke in the early 1980s and I grew up in Durham and you know I'm a big basketball fan. I've been involved in basketball in one way or another for most of my life. And when I look back on kind of the timeline, and I include this in my timeline on, on my blog, but when I look at the timeline of changes to the game itself that have occurred that occurred really going back to the early 70s when freshmen were allowed to play on the varsity team and then through the dunking rule the luau cinder rule is, is what it was called when dunking was outlawed and then it was reinstated and then after board of reach oh and then of course you had the you know the indiana state michigan state game and then after Board of Regents, you had a series of structural changes to the game to make it more entertaining, to enhance the entertainment value of the product that I believe are the direct product of the NCAA's attempt to maximize the value of that product to consumers, to increase the value of these contracts that they were doing with CBS and Turner. And they combine that with some of the most ag aggressive marketing. I mean, that tournament is one of the most marketed single products 
I think, in American history. And it's because the NCAA national office's existence depends on it. And some of those rules changes, I don't want to get on a rant here, but, and this is a whole nother topic, but the way that the rules changed post Board of Regents, you know, including the shot clock, the three point line, and, and then the conforming of those two fundamental rules changes to the NBA product really were, I think, fundamental to the way that the game has evolved. And then you also, with the influence of TV, and the segmentation of the 40-minute game into what I think are really bouts. You know, the b- basketball game now, a college basketball game, isn't comprised of two 20-minute halves. It's comprised of four to five-minute bouts between TV timeouts. And it's changed the nature of the game. It seems like a small thing. But those timeouts are written into the rules of the game. They are part of, they are part of the rules of the game of basketball. And it's fundamentally changed the game. And that's a, it's a whole nother topic. It may be a whole nother podcast or a whole nother book. But um, I think a lot of that's the result of the NCAA's attempt to capture as much value out of the basketball product as possible. And, you know, so you have these two things playing out post Board of Regents. And then into the 1990s and the death of the CFA, and then this crazy wave of conference realignment. And it started off really kind of as one-offs. And I'm going to use the ACC as an example, as I, as I said earlier, because ACC was really a kind of a weak sister among what are now the Power Five conferences. And from a football standpoint, I mean, it was a basketball conference. It was a, a tobacco road show. And that's what I grew up with. That, that, was, that was my world. And ACC and basketball were inextricably linked. And football, you know, you had Clemson, you know, Georgia Tech had a good football history. Carolina had some really good teams. Uh, but you didn't have the consistent national presence of teams that could compete for a national championship year in and year out. And so when the ACC picked up Florida State in the early 90s, it fundamentally changed the nature of the ACC. I mean, that single move really made the ACC a legitimate football power. And those were the Bobby Bowden years and the really big time years for Florida State. It's fallen off here recently. But back then, that was instant credibility for the ACC. And then you saw other schools in the conference really trying to keep up with Florida State. And so I think that kind of raised all of the boats in the harbor there on when it came to ACC football. And then there's this other influence that Donovan talks about that is really, really important. This ties into a broader theme that has also evolved in the COVID area, and that is the emphasis on championships as a product. So in my judgment, this whole season, the 2021 season, has been about one thing for big-time football and big-time basketball, and that is getting to the big championship payday. And for a big-time football, it was the CFP, the college football playoff. And for big-time basketball, it is March Madness. The regular seasons were meaningless. And one of the things that got exposed in, in this COVID era is that the regular season is nice for the conferences to make some money. And that, you know the NCAA has nothing to do with regular season programming. That's all conference programming. And so when you look at the balance sheet of the big conferences, a lot of their revenue comes from their regular season packages. But to hold this thing together, to hold the business model together during COVID, the big paydays were essential. So the the, uh, big time football interest were going to have fall football come hell or high water. And they all needed to be eligible to participate in the CFP because the CFP had to have some credibility for the product to exist at all. And they go forward and they, you know, they pull it off. And I don't know, again, whether there were any adjustments made because of COVID to the price tag. But that big tournament, that $750 million product, in addition to the big ball games, uh, that took place. And so that keeps the, you know, keeps the car running, so to speak. And then on the basketball side, you had a a regular season that was an embarrassment. I I don't know how you put together a credible field from this regular season. It was just ridiculous from start to finish. And the NCAA made clear from the outset that they were going to play that March Madness tournament no matter what. 
it was going to happen. And the NCAA, if uh, all but two teams were disqualified because of COVID, then those two teams are going to play for a national championship and CBS was going to market it like it was the moon landing. There was just no question about that. But that was to get to the payday, to get to the championship payday. So that's relevant to this timeline because that wave started in earnest. You know, you had the bowl games, which kind of had that flavor. But in terms of the year-to-year value of championship games to the overall big-time college sports marketplace, one of the primary movers was this rule that existed under NCAA rules that if you had 12 teams in your conference – then you could have a conference championship game to decide the conference winner. And the SEC in 1992, after bringing in South Carolina and Arkansas, got to 12 teams. And it was therefore eligible to hold a championship game, which it did. And that championship game was such a commercial success that in 1992, when the SEC was under contract, their regular season contracting for televised football ran through the CFA because it was still in existence. The SEC made more money off that single championship game than the entire regular season package that the CFA put together for them in 1992. And then a couple of years later, the uh, SEC le- left the CFA. I think I said earlier in this episode that it, they left in 92. They le- actually left in 95. And I think part of the motivation in that was that they saw that they could do more with that single championship game than the CFA could do for them. So that was kind of the beginning of the unraveling of the CFA, which disbanded again in um, 1997. So now we're into the 1990s. So we had 1951 to 81. Those were the NCAA monopoly years, 81 to 90. The shakeout through Board of Regents and the early CFA years. And then uh, the 1990s through to, I'm going to say, about 2010. And then you have this really the the golden age of the aggregation of big time football interests and power and economic might that plays out between 2010 and and 2019. And then of course we have the COVID era. So just kind of looking at at where I am time-wise, I think what I'm going to do in this episode is take us through to that 2010 period. And then we'll pick up from there in the next episode. But in this 1990 to 2010 period, 1998, as all the big football interests are trying to see what's going to happen in this market and how they can uh, maximize the value of the product, there was a sense that they there needed to be a little more cooperation. And then another thing that happened is that as this conference realignment craze started and schools were aggressively, or conferences, excuse me, were aggressively looking to pick off products from different conferences or that you know may have been independent to try to enhance the value of the football package that they could sell to networks, you had the the footprints of the conferences expanding in a way that made their interests less provincial. So you look at the, you know, the footprint of the SEC, uh, for example, expanded dramatically. The same is true with the Big Ten and the ACC. The ACC went from uh, its northernmost outpost being in College Park, Maryland, to its northernmost outpost being in Syracuse, New York. And then on the southern side, instead of Georgia Tech, it was Miami. And you had these massive expansions of the footprint, which I think took some of the energy out of the traditional kind of Hatfield and McCoy dividing line that existed between the Big Ten and the what is now the Pac-12 on the one hand, and then the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 on the other. So that sort of started to facilitate some some more cooperation. And also in the uh, prisoner's dilemma metaphor, the big powerful football interest decided that maybe a plan of cooperation would be in the best interests of all of the market participants. And that's when you saw the Big Ten and the Pac-12 sort of relent a little bit on holding on to the Rose Bowl. And they talked about folding it into a a new approach to big-time college football that would consolidate power among the big-time football schools, 
but also have the best products available in a way that could enhance the market value. And that was driven in large part through the Bowl Alliance and then through the Bowl Championship Series, and then ultimately the college football playoff, to getting to a system where the two best teams in the country could actually compete against each other for a national championship. Because prior to that cooperation and the the tie-in, the conference tie-ins to these bowl games, sometimes that limited the possibility of the two best teams in the country playing each other. And Donovan talks about that in his book and goes through that in good detail and, and gives some examples of that. But in this conference realignment process, Donovan describes the interests kind of in a the haves and the have-nots. And the true haves are really limited to what are now the 65 Power 5 schools. And there's been some – who was running with the big dogs has changed through conference realignment. And again, the ACC is a good example of that because, you know, they wound up going from a, really a seven-school conference whose primary identity was with basketball to a 15-school conference, if you include Notre Dame, that has, at least on paper, as much of a football identity as a basketball identity. And in that transition, the ACC picked up Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech, Boston College, Syracuse, Pittsburgh, and Notre Dame. They got Louisville as well, but that was more of a basketball get. And Boston College was brought in really to get them to the ACC to 12. I'm not sure the ACC was that fired up about Boston College, quite frankly, but it was a convenient way to get to 12 teams and then the conference championship format. But those are some heavy hitting football schools, you know, Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech, Pittsburgh, Notre Dame. So it changed the fundamental character of the ACC. But it also solidified their place as a big-time powerful football conference. And now they're, they're reaping the rewards of that through uh, having the ability to play in the college football playoff. And with the rise of Clemson as a, a dominant national power, the ACC has been um, handsomely rewarded for its uh, emphasis on football. And one of the defining elements of the big-time football interests kind of consolidating their power and stratifying their interests under the NCAA governance umbrella, and from an economic standpoint in terms of who's allowed in the big-time club and who's excluded, you had this movement by the second-tier schools, second-tier football schools that are that now comprise what are the group of five, these sort of second tier conferences in the college football playoff structure. And they serve primarily, in my judgment, as antitrust camouflage for the Power Five. But one of the things that played out in this 1990 to 2010 period and into the transition into the bowl championship series was the stratification where the major bowls were dominated by what are now the Power Five conferences. And some of these smaller schools started to feel like they were being purposefully excluded from the opportunity to even compete. And you had a, a group of these schools form a coalition, and then they had a university president. His name is Cowan. I can't remember exactly who he was with. But he began a lobbying campaign in Congress to try to make the case that there could be some antitrust implications of how the Bowl Championship Series was structured and controlled by these powerful 60 ish schools. And they got some hearings in 2003 in the House and the Senate. And they uh, basically it was a, you know, David and Goliath kind of dilemma. And the NCAA and the big time football powerhouses defended the, in very stark terms their business interests. And they basically said, we're the best and, you know, the best gets paid more. And, you know, this is America and it's a free market. And the free market is saying that the television viewers and the product want us and not you. And 
Then when the antitrust card was fully on the table, then the big-time powerful interests struck a deal to put together a formula that would make it easier for some of these second-tier schools to be competitive in some of the major bowl games. And then that transferred into the evolution of the college football playoff. And remember, back in the BCS days, the bowl system people, the big bowls, they were adamantly opposed to a playoff because that was their status quo. You know, So there's, there's just been this series of status quo preservation eras. And in the the 90s and the 2000, or the first decade of the 2000s, you had this fight to the death protection of the big time bowl business model. And talking about a national playoff was heresy. And it's funny to see in that transition how ridiculous that opposition looks now. But I think when the college football playoff was formulated, you had this sense that the second tier conferences, this group of five conferences, needed to be brought in to sort of create the appearance of access, the opportunity theoretically for a true underdog to come in and challenge one of the Titans if they could qualify for one of the four spots. No, None of those teams have ever qualified. It's been a big time football show and it's been largely an SEC, ACC football show. And of course, the final benefit, and I think the primary benefit of having a group of five included in the CFP is that it provides a level of immunity from potential antitrust liability if the Power Five had simply excluded any other conferences or any other member institutions. I think they would have been looking at a lot of pushback. So that was kind of a safe way to nip that in the bud. And when you look at the revenue sharing component of the CFP, you see that the group of five get very little money and just enough to sort of keep them happy enough to not complain, which is a similar tactic that the NCAA uses with the March Madness money and how it spreads it around to keep enough downstream beneficiaries happy enough to be okay with the status quo while the NCAA national office gets fat and rich off of that money. And nobody complains about it because everybody's kind of getting enough just to keep them happy and quiet and compliant. So heading into 2010, this 2010 to 2019 period that I I want to talk about, you have conference realignment almost complete. There were a couple of additions and subtractions in 2012, but for the most part, the template was set. The discussions had begun. And then in the next episode, I'm going to pick up at around 2010 through 2012 and bring us into 2019 and then through the perfect storm to where things sit now in the context of this prisoner's dilemma. So let's just do a a quick recap of where we are with the prisoner's dilemma. So you have the NCAA on the one hand who went from in complete control of college football and the marketplace of college football to losing the entire empire and then getting it, its power back through the March Madness contract and the rapacious exploitation of Division I men's basketball. And then you had the football interests, which were fractured, almost hopelessly fractured between the Big Ten and the Pac-10 at that time on the one hand, and then the, the rest of the conferences kind of with the Southern flavor on the other hand. Going into a disorganized market and then coming back around to try to figure out a way to consolidate their power and to cooperate in a way that had them in the best market position and in a way that they could maximize the value of the product. And that went through a series of iterations from the CFA to this sort of every conference for itself period, then to this conference realignment period and the bowl alliance where there was cooperation among the conferences and brought back the Big Ten and the Pac-10 into the big time conference fold. And there was cooperation through that and then into the BCS. And then as conference realignment really started to wind down, you had these five massive conferences operating together with a level of power and influence unprecedented in college sports. And I would say unprecedented in American sports 
because of the institutions that are part of that five conference alliance. So we're heading with this intact, this massive power structure that has complete dominance over the college sports marketplace and and untapped potential heading into this 2010 period. And as I said at the beginning of this episode, Donovan's book was published in 2004. So in his portrayal of the events in the 50-year seduction, he ends in 2003. And remember that in 2003, we were in the BCS era, and you had the basically 60-ish schools that now comprise the Power Five, aggregating their power. And Donovan makes some interesting observations as he's kind of closing out his thoughts on the 50-year seduction. And he says, after three decades of struggling to separate themselves within the structure of the NCAA, the members of the BCS conferences managed to achieve something even more powerful and profound. The BCS emerged as a marketplace validation of the concept and characteristics of big-time college football, a closely guarded and widely coveted stamp of approval. As the new bowl structure created a new paradigm for the sport, it became the most stratifying force in the history of college football. But it also accurately reflected not only marketplace viability, but historical reality. But the establishment of the BCS marked the dawn of a new era in major college football. The BCS took on the look and feel of a permanent wall between the sports haves and have-nots, creating a division in which the chosen members felt significant incentive to protect their lofty status. And that is a perfect summary to take us into the 2010 to 2019 period, which was the golden age of the advancement of the interests of the Power Five and the riches that came along with it. And so you have, in terms of the prisoner's dilemma between the NCAA on the one hand and then the Power Five on the other, as we're heading into 2010, those prisoners have some incentive to have a lot of incentive to cooperate, but the cooperation's not really equal, or it doesn't seem that way on the economic side. But when we get to really looking at what both of those prisoners get from cooperation, I think you'll see that the big time football interests have gotten more from the NCAA than they want to admit. And they're things that are simply not part of the discussion in the business model of big time college sports. So let's go ahead and close out this episode on the first portion of this analysis of the prisoner's dilemma. And then in the next episode, we'll get into the more recent features that have evolved and how they influence the incentives in the prisoner's dilemma. So thank you so much for joining. And I look forward to having you back for the next episode of The Big Amateurism monologues. Take care.